Today at Reader's Corner, Mitchell Zukoff, author of The Secret Gate, a true story of courage and sacrifice during the collapse of Afghanistan. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. When the U.S. began its withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Afghan army instantly collapsed, Omera Kaderi was marked for death at the hands of the Taliban. A celebrated author, academic, and champion for women's liberation, Omera was suddenly caught in the evacuation turmoil at the Kabul airport, trying and failing to secure escape for her and her eight-year-old son, her parents, and the rest of the family. In his latest book, The Secret Gate, a true story of courage and sacrifice during the collapse of Afghanistan, Mitchell Zukoff tells the astonishing true story of Omera's nail-biting rescue and how a brave Afghan mother and American diplomatic officer engineered a daring escape. Mitchell Zukoff is a professor of journalism at Boston University. He is the author of several books, most recently Ponzi's Scheme, The True Story of a Financial Legend. As a reporter with the Boston Globe, he was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize and the recipient of numerous National Writing Awards. A few years ago, Mitchell joined us here at Reader's Corner to discuss his book, Lost in Shangri-La, a true story of survival, adventure, and the most incredible rescue mission of World War II. Mitchell Zukoff, it's great to have you back here at Reader's Corner. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be back here. Well, I was uh, so impressed with your book and uh, the way you managed to build the tension that uh, was obviously uh, a daily part of the lives of these two protagonists. Uh, I did read that you wrote the lead story for the Boston Globe on uh, the 9-11 terrorist attack on the Twin Towers. And here you are 20 years later writing about what could be deemed the other end of the terror response by the U.S. Uh, One could conclude that you really never took your eye off the ball, focused on how our focus on terror would, would play out. Uh, any thoughts uh, on you, that? You really, no, you really, you absolutely, you get it, Bob. Um, covering the story of 9-11 from here in Boston, where obviously two of the planes took off from Logan Airport, the two planes that struck yeah. the towers, um, knowing people who were affected and, and uh, a colleague of mine, his father was on the first plane. Uh, it, it did. It stayed with me throughout. And mm-hmm. so in, in many ways, this is, um, the end of, in many ways, a trilogy for me. So I, I, I wrote a book about 9-11, but I also wrote a book about Benghazi, which is another 9-11 yeah. story, and then, and then this. And so it's, it is something I could never shake. That's mm-hmm. exactly the right way to yeah. put it. How did you learn about uh, Homaira and, and Sam? And just as interesting, how did it occur to you to link them together in one book as you do, alternating chapter on Homaira and then chapter on Sam? So when this first happened, when we all remember back, it was not that long ago in August of 2021, uh, we were all, I think, fixated on on the scenes we were witnessing, these sort of you know, human tragedy at the uh, Kabul airport and watching people clinging to departing planes and crushing against the wall. And so I, I was just an observer of that. And just the the humanity of it was was heartbreaking. And what I didn't know was that somebody who I was connected to through my earlier work was monitoring it closely. So Marley Russoff was the literary agent for Omera Kadiri. 
And so Marley was among the people trying to get O'Mara out. And Marley, Marley's closest friend was my editor on Lost in Shangri-La and several of my other books. So I sort of got swept, uh, you know, a little bit belatedly into that circle of people. And there were people like this all over the world, reaching out, trying to get someone, a, a former translator, uh, somebody who worked at the UN, somebody who was working for a nonprofit, trying to get them out of Kabul before the Taliban took over. And we had this ticking clock of before the last American flight went wheels up. And so as this was happening, they were really involved. And then as it uh, ended, Marley told my former editor, Claire, you know, we, we really need to tell this story. And um, if only we could, you know, find that guy who wrote <laughs> those other books. <laughs> and right. Claire effectively said, I've got him on speed dial. Why don't we just talk to him right now? And so... So sometimes it's better to be a little lucky than good, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, and so this, this story just, it, as soon as it came to me, I, I first thought it, it would be a story of a number of people. But the more I did my work, the more I did my reporting, got to know Amira and got to know Sam, I realized not only are they just two remarkable individuals, two extraordinary people, but also they unwittingly, they symbolize so much um, you know, I mean, if, if this was fiction, you would have to name this guy Sam, like Uncle Sam. You know, he, he, right. he represents sort of, you know, the United States' best efforts, which were often inadequate in Afghanistan. Obviously, we ended up giving the country back over to the Taliban, who had, yeah. we had gone in to fight, uh, yeah. you know, when they supported al-Qaeda. Um, but they were well-intentioned, just like Sam Aronson. And O'Meara... You know, we spent a lot of the last 20 years thinking about how are we going to protect Amer Afghan women and girls, make sure that they have opportunities and education and independence and freedom. And she embodied all of those hopes and dreams. This is a woman who uh, survived a divorce. You know, in, in Afghanistan, a divorced woman is not, it's not uncommon that a divorced woman will, will set herself on fire. Self-immolation remains an avenue for divorced women in, in Afghanistan, as horrible as that is. But she instead, she fought for custody of Siavash. She fought for custody of her son in a patriarchal society. She had a PhD. She published a book called Dancing in the Mosque. I mean, <laughs> by, you know, by virtue of the title alone, she was an infidel in the right. eyes of the fundamentalists. Yeah, for sure. And so, so she symbolized all of these incredible things about what was possible in Afghanistan. And so once, uh, you know, as a writer, as a, you know, somebody who does what, what I do, once you're presented with two such extraordinary people and the fact that their stories do intersect at the end and, and in a remarkable, uh, heart-stopping way, I knew that uh, any thought I have of writing a, a larger story uh, fell, to the, fell to the wayside. Mm -hmm. Describe for our listeners what it was like for O'Mara to struggle mightily with this decision on leaving or staying. She comes from a relatively large extended family. Uh, they're very close-knit in the way you, you describe them. And um, the choice was – was extremely difficult. I mean, no wonder so many of these people you named that were trying to help her failed on the first, second, and third try because 
She was so dedicated to staying, not just to fight the Taliban and to let them know that she wasn't afraid of them, but like I said, also because of some family issues like mom and dad, will I ever see you again? Exactly. And I think I think that was something that we didn't get when we were watching those images of people crushing to the airport. I think it was easy to imagine that everyone yeah. uh, who could leave was just was was racing to get inside the airport and get on the first C-130 that, that they could find a seat aboard. But in fact, there were people like Omera and she was just a, you know, I, I, I found myself identifying with her. That the idea of leaving your homeland, leaving all that you had created. Um, she had she owned her own a, a beautiful apartment uh, near the Kabul University. She had her b- beloved parents, her brothers, her sister, her cousins. She had a status from being a, a celebrity of sorts and a, and a public intellectual there. And so just sort of, you know, because nobody expected, including the people in Kabul, nobody expected the Taliban to return this quickly. Nobody expected... As, as you described in the introduction, the, the, the Afghan army, 300,000 strong, that it would dissolve on contact. Yeah. And so overnight, she had to decide, what do I do? Do I become a refugee? And she remembered when her parents, when she was a little girl and her parents were um, dealing with the, the Russian invasion, she asked her mother, what, is it, what does this word mean, refugee? And her mother told her it means dying alone. That was her way of describing it to a little girl. So those words were burned into her consciousness. And so the idea of leaving, the idea of leaving her family, and so she, as you described, she she kept trying to get her whole family seats on a plane. And it was almost mm-hmm. impossible to get 17 or 15 seats all together. But, you know, these organizations could maybe get her and her, her, her son but she said, no, if it's, if, if it's not all of us, I'm not going. And it, so it took day after day seeing how bad it was getting, seeing that her presence was endangering her brothers and her cousins and her sister, seeing that things were not going to get any better, that, that the minute the last plane left, the Taliban was going to do what we've exactly what we've seen them do in the last two years, was going to deny women any of their rights. Mm-hmm. Um, she slowly, the ice started breaking, and, and she started realizing, yes, if there's a way out, I have to take it. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Mitchell Zukoff. He's the author of The Secret Gate, a true story of courage and sacrifice during the collapse of Afghanistan. You mentioned her son. I, I was really impressed with the way the reader could come away with at least some understanding of what it's like for kids to go through these migrant routes and to be dislocated. Uh, This is an eight-year-old that was really apparently a very bright kid. He figured things out almost before his mother did. I'll let you expand on that, but Siavash, right? exactly right. Yeah, Yeah. Siavash is exactly that. He's a really bright kid. He was studying at at an international school, so he already spoke English. He, you know... He was at once um, a little boy and old beyond his years. So he and his um, and his cousins and, and, and neighbor children would pretend um, to be setting up uh, a gun emplacement from their balcony in case the Taliban was coming. But at the same time, he was afraid. And at the same time, he, you know, as soon as the Taliban came to Kabul, 
um, they started changing how they like subtly changing how they dressed and no longer wearing Western clothes. Um, the jeans and, and, and shirts that they had been you know, really their whole lives, eight years, you know, during American presence there. Um, and suddenly they're wearing the more traditional clothes and the little hat um, that went with it. And so he was torn also because he still was still connected to his father, who, um, you know, his, his parents had divorced, but uh, he didn't want to leave his father behind. And so he ha- he st- starts realizing as it's happening, first he wants to go. First he's like, Mom, we have to get out of here. And then the first time they try to make it to the airport and they get caught up in a mob outside um, uh, H. Kaya is how the, the nickname for the airport, um, and nearly trampled. And he just wants to go home. And, and he wants to cling to his grandfather, who he loves very much. And so um, I, I thought he, he was as important a subject in many ways as Omera and Sam, because the confusion of a child, the, you know, the sort of the, the combination of, of naivete and awareness of an eight-year-old who has lived his whole life with suicide bombings and what was happening in, in uh, Kabul his whole life, um, I thought made a really important perspective for us. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the marriage and divorce of Omera, and, you've, and of course, you've referred to, to Siavash's uh, father, but, but I don't want listeners to get the impression this is the same old uh, marriage and divorce that we have in America, because if I remember correctly, uh, in, in this case, Omera's former husband remarried and then invited her back in I guess as his second wife or whatever, I don't know. Maybe you can explain that. Yeah. But I mean, it just goes to show you what a what a different place this is than where we Americans are comfortably today. That's exactly right. And so this is a woman with a PhD. She thought she had a good marriage. And um, when they, ret- they, they had been in the western part of the country, they returned to Kabul. And he decides to, to avail himself of his quote-unquote privilege of taking a new wife and he just announces it to her and she said and she refuses and she says no i'm 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 not going to she understood the role of the um the first wife was to kind of disappear into the shadows and that's not who she is and she's a fierce proud independent woman and so she tells him no and he says you know what are you what are you talking about this is this is between me and and um and my my god me and 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 the, the, the prophet and she continues to resist and he he avails himself of something known as triple talaq which is the ability to over text he said divorce 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 three times saying divorce and they were fi- effectively divorced she was he told her, you are free to go back to your father's house, and I'm going to take this new wife, and the boy is mine. And even with, this was obviously well into um, the, 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 the Afghan Republic, it was a democratically elected government, the American system had been trying to move uh, Afghanistan into the 20th or 21st century, um, and yet still that existed. And so she was thrown through that upheaval, and only after fighting and, and, and asserting herself 
could she regain custody of, of Siavash? Mm -hmm. So you're right. This is not what we think of normally as a, as a divorce. This is a, um, a betrayal. This is an upheaval. Um, this is a, um, I, I dare say, I think a cruel and, and, and primitive practice um, to basically throw someone out. And uh, he kept all, all the profits of her books and the property they bought together all just simply became his. And so she had really been through a lot. Well, let's talk about Sam Aronson. Uh, tell us about his background, uh, what caused him to volunteer for this assignment. And it wasn't just a matter of a guy raising his hand and saying, yeah, sure, I'll go. He, he had to fight to go. I mean, he really had to work through the bureaucracy in order to pull this off. It's true. So Sam's a really interesting guy. He, you know, a super bright guy, um, went to Northeastern University here in, in Boston, um, and then went on to the London School of Economics and was thinking about a career in diplomacy or government service. Um, he has a very strong uh, moral compass. But for whatever reason, he wasn't accepted into the diplomatic corps. He was instead accepted into the diplomatic security corps. So he spent um, a half dozen years as basically a diplomatic bodyguard with high threat training. Um, he became what's known as a regional security officer for the State Department. And most people who, who do those jobs have passed military training or passed at least minimum police training. Uh, Sam had none of that, but he adapted quickly. He's, he's a, a sort of a guy on the go. And, you know, I think he, he possesses a great physical courage as well as, as, as moral courage. And so, and he had, you know, he has a real engine on him and he did not like sort of being idle. And so he was between assignments. It was August of 2021 and he sees what's happening just like we did. And he, he was no kind of expert on Afghanistan. He doesn't know that part of the world. He's in Africa, Africa hand, um, He'd been in Niger, et cetera. And, but he, he, he volunteers and he thinks, you know, I, I, I can help somewhere, even if they just put me at the State Department, um, you know, headquarters taking phone calls of people trying to get out. And he volunteers and they tell him no, because he's, he hasn't been in the diplomatic service long enough. He had by this time transferred over into from the, the um, security corps to the diplomatic corps. Um, he was not long enough tenured to get this kind of assignment, but he kept pushing and reached out to connections he made and to a mentor and kept putting his hand up. And his, his parents, he was close to his folks who live in New Jersey, and his parents are saying, uh, you know, well, what, Sam, you're not going to go there, are you? <laughs> and he's, no, 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 no. <laughs> At most I'll go to, you know, Qatar, right. and, you know, to Doha, or, you know, but no, you know, they're not going to send me there. And, you know, <laughs> quietly there's a voice in his head kind of thinking, oh, maybe they are. And, and <laughs> I keep seeing these emails that are coming back to me as I keep pushing and pushing, sort of asking about, you know, availability for a flight to you know to Kabul um and in this time uh you know his wife he's fairly newly wed and uh, his wife Liana um who also is in government service uh she knows him and she she makes him uh offer her some some assurances that you know like she she knows that that this is a guy who's going to push it to the limit and when he finally uh gets the go-ahead that he is going and he is going to get on a plane uh to what it looks like to Kabul, um, Liana makes him make these three promises. First, don't do anything <laughs> unnatur unnaturally dangerous. 
um, don't be a hero and don't leave the airport. And he, he I'll stop there, but he's right. sincere at the time when he, he, he says yes to all three. Right. Yeah. And I, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, and how, so how'd that work out? But we're going to leave that for the list. <laughs> we're going to leave that yeah. for the our listeners to figure out, because as I said earlier, the, the way you have managed uh, to just increase the tension and the suspense in this book uh, toward its ending, uh, our listeners deserve to read that. You're listening to Mitchell Zukoff. He's the author of The Secret Gate, a true story of courage and sacrifice during the collapse of Afghanistan. I will say this about Sam Aronson. Uh, you know, here, here America was the global peacekeeper portrayed around the globe as cutting and running. And, and that's where I think your treatment of Sam is so important. Well, first of all, it was Sam's own performance that was, was the reason why you could do the treatment. Um, because here you have so many of these brave young Americans that were totally unconnected and unrelated to these people who are trying to flee Afghanistan, except, of course, for their, for their humanity and the unimaginable position that these people were in. I wonder if you could just give us an example of how unimaginable this was. Um, there's a moment in your book where I think the desperation of these Afghan people was summed up when Sam is helping a woman with a two-week-old baby that has some scratches on uh, its body. Yes. And he's trying to get her on the plane, and a Marine comes up alongside of him and tells the rest of the woman's story. This was, this was a – Bob, it's a, you, you put your finger right on it. This is a pivotal moment, I think, in Sam's uh, transition from to really understand what he was dealing with and what he needed to do um, to be able to look himself in the mirror. And this Marine explains to Sam that, um, and he, the Marine is angry because he has a little baby back home himself. And he tells Sam, uh, yeah, she, t- she tossed this baby through the, um, the concertina wire over the wall. And that's how those, those nasty, you know, those vicious scratches along the baby's neck occurred. And so he, and, and Sam is taking this in and he can't be angry at her. He's just, he, he's he's shocked by it that a woman would toss her her newborn, um, but it, it obviously it spoke to the desperation of somebody who knows that if she stays, she her baby uh, will have no future in 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 what's going to be become of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and so Sam uh, goes to great lengths to insist that she get on a plane, and he he writes down her husband's phone number on her arm to make sure she doesn't lose it and gives it another, you know, uh, puts it on a piece of paper. And um, he's doing everything possible to help this woman uh, who wants to wait there and, and wait for her husband, who Sam knows is not going to get through the, the, you know, is not going to get over the wall, a man of military age. And so Sam has to do this thing that's both heartbreaking, separate this family and do what he believes is right. Make sure that this woman and this child have a, a chance at a future. Mm-hmm. And and anything Sam thought up to that point about what he was doing there, he just thought he was going to help organize this withdrawal. And then he understood just the, the, the human costs and the human toll that were, were building around him. For any of us that remember those final moments of the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, if we remember anything, we're going to remember the photo of the plane with Afghans hanging off of it as it takes off. 
They fall to their death. There's another one, a photo of Afghans on top of the plane, all trying to get inside the plane. Uh, It's reminiscent of the 1975 fall of Saigon uh, where they had the images of these helicopters with Vietnamese hanging on, trying to escape. And in the meantime, Secretary of State Tony Blinken is describing this withdrawal as orderly and according to plan. And you have a piece in there where ABC's This Week, Jonathan Carl, kind of calls him out on that. And I guess I I would like you to just expand on that a bit to help listeners remember what what it looked like and and what what was going on there at the moment that really cast America in such a negative light. And once again, to your point, that's what makes what Sam and his colleagues did so incredibly important for people to understand that Americans did care and they did do something. But anyway, tell us Indeed. about that moment. With, yeah, yeah, no, that moment, it was complete chaos. It was, it was a, a humanitarian disaster. You had tens of thousands of Afghans rushing toward the airport with no means to get them out. Um, there was no expectation that this was going to happen as quickly as it did. And so suddenly we did have the administration putting 5,000 troops back on the ground um, inside the airport, largely, uh, to try and deal with this. Uh, we, we had, tragically, we had people crushed to death against the walls. We had, as you described, Bob, people clinging to airplanes, uh, climbing into the wheel well of, of a C-130, um, only to fall to their deaths when the plane took off and the wheels went up. And um, so, right, no, nobody, whether it was the State Department, um, uh, Secretary of State Blinken or his spokespeople or anyone who suggested that this was an orderly uh, withdrawal, uh, going according to plan, absolutely not the case. And yet there were people like Sam and people like, um, there were a couple of ambassadors on the ground and, and, and a remarkable guy I write about named J.P. Feldmayer, who was uh, coordinating a lot of these things on the ground, who were working around the clock uh, under terrible conditions. Um, remember, this is also during the height of COVID and exposing themselves uh, in every way and uh and just putting themselves at risk for others for for the strangers among them and they did care and they did give uh everything of themselves to do it and and i just you know i think it's it in fairness there's a ton of blame to go around when we we start talking about different administrations you know the 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 doha agreement that led to the withdrawal i think is, is it's fair to say that was a poorly executed agreement um, done under the Trump administration. Yeah. But once the Biden administration decided to go ahead with it, it became their withdrawal. And so, you know, I think you know from the book, I don't politicize it because I'm focused on the people who are left to clean up this horrible mess at the very end. Yeah. Yeah. You handled that very well, I, I thought, because there's two sides to this story. And um, there's no doubt that uh, there are many critics of what happened there, and and they attribute blame to different folks. I I know even General McMaster called the original agreement that Trump entered into, uh, by the way, without the Afghan government participation, as I remember it. He called it the surrender agreement, not the Doha agreement. And it's hard not to disagree with McMaster on that one. Uh, but anyway, getting yeah. on with it, I, I, we can't uh, we can't get through this entire mm. interview, and I don't have too much time left without at least helping our listeners understand what the secret gate is mm. as a part of 
the airport security system because there were there were there were a number of gates and um, and you yes. can you can explain. So the traditional gates at the airport were, were very much like uh, an, an American airport. You could maybe go in the north entrance or the south entrance. There was also um, some of our listeners will remember there was it was called Abbey Gate that uh, near the very end became the the scene of an absolutely horrendous suicide bombing that took uh, thirteen American lives and one hundred and seventy Afghan lives at least. Um, but so those are all the known gates where people were were crowding toward, where people were crushing toward. But the CIA, uh, who were, which was on the ground at the time, and uh, working with Delta Force members and some Afghan paramilitary operators, um, realized that they needed a way to get high-value intelligence and other folks into the airport through these thousands of people. And they needed some way to do that. And they realized there was this sort of unused back door, this service road from a main road that could that would lead to a break in the fence uh, that nobody really knew about. So they created this back door, this secret gate that the CIA was using um, very effectively. They, they even sort of they detoured some buses of former uh, Afghan employees of the U.S. Embassy. Uh, they, they brought high-value intelligence folks. They brought translators who were certainly at risk as soon as the Taliban took over. Those people would have been uh, killed for having worked with the American forces. And so they created this back door um, that was sort of hiding in plain sight. If you drove by it along this main street called Tajikan Road, you would just sort of see some um, uh, some cement barriers and, and maybe some people wandering around near a gas station. But in fact, it was a lifeline for hundreds of people. And when Sam realizes that this is what's happening. He is sent near the gate to help clear. Um, he, he serves basically as a consular official. He, he has the right to say, yes, this person is allowed to come into the United States as a State Department official. He realizes, wait a second, I can use this because people were reaching out to him uh, constantly from everywhere. Uh, people from college who knew somebody who had served in Afghanistan told them, oh, I have a guy there. It's named Sam Aronson. Maybe he can help your former translator. Maybe he can help this UN employee who's trapped there. And and Sam was getting, you know, on top of working an exhausting 12-hour shift, the next 12 hours was sorting through these texts and phone calls and emails like everyone, all the Americans on the ground were receiving. And he puts two and two together and realizes, maybe I can use this back door. Um, to start doing some freelance rescues of people who should be saved but aren't going to get in otherwise. And finally, I wonder if you could just tell us how Sam Aronson and his colleagues who worked the airport finally get recognized by the State Department. Uh, you know, it, it, it was complicated. They get recognized and they, they, they all receive commendations for um, – Sam won several commendations uh, from the Secretary of State and – from the State Department as a whole, uh, for actions above and beyond the call of duty in what his supervisor described as an apocalyptic scene. Um, but like everything when it comes to Afghanistan, it was, it was complicated because while on one hand he's being honored and praised and you know having his picture taken with the Secretary of State who greets him, um, he is being denied uh, some basic you know, services um, when he's coming home exhausted and strung out a bit, 
And so uh, he was recognized in many ways publicly and honored appropriately. And yet the bureaucracy of the State Department made it actually even harder for him. And that must explain why he eventually left and went to work for a tech company, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It hastened his departure. And so um, there's a cost there for all of us. When when a Sam Aronson leaves government service, uh, we're all poorer for it, I believe. Well, that that right there summed it up for me because that's exactly the feeling I I had. And I want to remind our listeners, the name of uh, Omera Kaderi's book is Dancing in the Mosque. A great one to look up and uh, and and read. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. This book is just one of the best, and uh, it really, really does uh, elevate uh, the stature of a number of young Americans who did everything they could possibly do to help people that were put in this most uncompromising situation. Thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Bob, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. I, I, I can't wait to come back. Again, the name of the book is The Secret Gate, A True Story of Courage and Sacrifice During the Collapse of Afghanistan. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.